Well, hey, we're going to keep rocking and rolling on this series that started back at the very beginning of January. And we're, what we're doing is we're going through the Old Testament. Old Testament can be overwhelming. It can be confusing. It can be difficult to understand. It can be even easier to just kind of be indifferent to it because we're on this side of Jesus. We're on the New Testament side of things. And so it can be very easy to say, why do I need to know anything about it? <laughs> it doesn't really matter. I got Jesus. We have grace. We have forgiveness. Why does it matter that I read Leviticus and read about all these sacrificial laws and things like that? Well, we'll eventually, probably like June, we'll get to Leviticus. No, I'm just kidding. Hopefully before that. Hopefully before that. We're rocking through the Old Testament because it's so, so important. So much is going on here. So many great things. The Old Testament is a foundation of the New Testament. And we talked about Christ as our firm foundation. And the foundation under that was the Old Testament. And we can see there's a wonderful story developing and all these themes. And it gives, it gives Jesus and it gives His depth and His mission so much, so much depth, so, so much meaning. So much meaning to the word good news. It is good news for us, but man, if you were a first century Jew that had grown up, maybe you like for the first 30, 40 years of your life, you were under the law, and then Jesus comes onto the scene, and He's preaching, and He does everything, and now you're transitioning to this, this new way of being a Jew, uh, boy, you would definitely see it as good news. You would see it as incredibly good news. And I'll try to explain some of that, but I think as we go through the Old Testament, I'll continue to try to vet that out and vet that out. It's wonderful. It's so much, so wonderful, the Old Testament. Another reason, too, I wanted to go through this, and it kind of, kind of developed in the last couple weeks. I know that maybe some of you, you're like, Grant, I believe in God. Why do we got to get into the weeds? <laughs> why do we got to get into all these really interesting topics? And why do we have to uh, almost somewhat muddy the waters, so to speak, of the Old Testament? Why do we have to get into these debatable matters? I believe in Jesus. What a, why? Why, why, why? It doesn't matter to salvation if I hold this view or that view. Fair, to some degree. I'll push back on that one day. <laughs> but this, these messages, they're for the people that we're trying to reach. This may not be for you. This may not be that encouraging to you. But guess what? We live in a world that is asking seriously hard questions about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Seriously hard questions. And I wouldn't say hard. Maybe I would say really great questions. And what's your answer? And how are you talking about that to them? Because we're trying to reach those people. And we don't want to just be like, oh man, well, you know what, whatever, forget about them. A lot of our culture and are grounded in a very scientifically-minded worldview, is looking at the first 11 chapters with a very skeptic eye. Very skeptic eye. How are we responding to them? Are we saying, oh, don't ask those questions. You'll be fine. Just believe in Jesus. We've got to meet them where they're at. Ideally, I would love them to just be, as many people have said, judge Christianity on the resurrection of Jesus. Go there. That's where we have our foundation. Go there. But they don't. They go to Genesis 1 through 11. Is this myth? Is this real? Is this history? Can we trust it? 
And I get it. I get it. I empathize. I've been there and done that. I've asked those same questions. I think we need to meet those people where they're at and have really good conversations with them. I think they need that. There's a little bit of an axiom called doubting little, doubting much. It's an unfortunate axiom. I really don't like it because I'm kind of like doubt can be a really good thing. So a little doubt is like healthy. But there is. It's true. A little doubt, little doubt, doubting little, doubting much. And we see this in our uh, judicial system. If I'm a defense lawyer, I just need the jury to have a little bit more than reasonable doubt in what the prosecution is saying. That's it. Doesn't matter if what the prosecution is doing is true or not. I just have to get them a little bit more than reasonable doubt and they'll come my way. I guarantee you Satan is trying to give you a little bit more doubt. A little bit more doubt. Just to question it a little bit more than you're maybe comfortable with. To throw you off. To throw you off. And now start doubting all of it. Again, I think a little doubt is great. Man, I will not be like, oh, that's bad. Boy, doubt has been beneficial for me. Because you know what you do with doubt? You go seek. You go seek. It moves you. Gets you going. Gets you rocking and rolling. i got some questions to answer. I need to go read some books. I need to go talk to some people. I need to go pray. I need to go look at these passages and what's going on here. So these messages, they are for you. It's good to think about the Old Testament. It's good to think well. That's another kind of thing. It's really been on my heart lately. I think I could easily come up here and talk about a lot of specific things that you guys are going through, and that's good, and that's important. But sometimes I think, you know, it's kind of like giving you a fish, I feed you for a day, teach you how to fish, feed you for a lifetime. I could come and, you know, what you got going on? All right, this is what you got to do. Boom, 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 help you for today. But if I can walk through the Old Testament with you and my dad and I, and we can study the God's Word, and we can think well about the Old Testament, we can think well about the New Testament, we can think well about God's Word in lots of different angles, and we can stretch, and we can push, and we can exercise, then man, I think we can really set you up for all those times in your life where you're like, hey, Grant's not here. What do I do in this situation? My dad, uh, Kelly's not here. What do I do in this situation? What's wise? We've taught you how to think. Think about it. Think about God's Word. You're familiar with it. What does it say? Where is it leading you? What is God leading you? How is He speaking to you? How are you being wise? How do I respond to this situation? Teach you how to think about God's Word. Man, I think we can really, really do something beneficial. So, that's my heart behind a lot of these sermons. I want us to think well. I want us to care about those people in our lives that don't know Jesus and they usually are the ones that come in. You know, how can you believe in the Bible? You know, the earth is this million, billion years old. How in the world can you believe in the Bible? The flood, there, there's no scientific evidence. Okay, let's have this discussion. Let's sit down and let's talk. Man, that would be wonderful. So that's my heart behind these sermons. We're going to continue rocking and rolling. Let's recap super quick Genesis 1 through 3. It's important. Really started out, the big word for all these sermons is order, 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 order. God brings forth order in Genesis 1. He takes this unordered world and He forms it into order. He gives it function. He names things. He separates them. This is so, so important. As you see right here, God's presence is exemplified. 
in day seven, God is ordering this world so that He can dwell in it with human beings. We can work together side by side to continue to extend this order. There were non-ordered parts, it would seem, in the world still. The sea is one of those. Even the desert sometimes was referred to in kind of this non-ordered realm. But the sea, definitely, and that's super important as we come to the flood, that to realize that you have this non-ordered area, substance, that is going to do some serious damage. It's going to be doing undoing order. And that's important to these things. But we'll get, get ahead of myself. Humans' roles were to extend God's order and His presence. Found in Genesis 2, we see that by God placing Adam and Eve in the garden, the garden being the holy of holy, God's intimate presence, that God was saying, hey, I want you to be the kind of these first priests, as we'll see later on in Exodus and, and in the Torah and the law, the kind of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You're to extend God's presence. You're to keep growing God's presence and filling this whole earth with God's good, intimate, wonderful presence. And we realize that they done messed up with that. <laughs> they disobeyed. They said, hey, we know how to do this, God. We know how to extend your order and your presence. We're going to do it our way. And gosh, do I see that in my life. And I'm sure you guys do too. Where you're like, you know what, I know what's best for me. I know what's best. I know what's best for me. I know what the good life looks like. I have a definition in my head of what the good life looks like for me. It's full of my dreams and my passions. And if only I get those. And that's the good life. And I'll always push back on that because boy, your definition of the good life better first and foremost be it is an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. Anything else that's usurps that, usurps that, gets on top of that, whatever that, however you say that word, my dad's mother is from Missouri, so it passed down, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a funny inside joke, I love it, right? Whatever that word is, if anything gets on top of that, boy, you're already off on the wrong foot, you're already doing what Adam and Eve did, I know what the good life is, I know what it's about, boy, we see that. We're going to keep trucking. We're going to start in Genesis 4. We're going to work our way through. We're going to see how far we can get in the time allotted today. Here's a framework I want you to hold on to because it'll be important, again, especially as you're reading the Old Testament. You're going to find this framework working over and over. It's going to give you some clarity, some, some ground, some footing as you read through the Old Testament. It'll be up here on the board. What usually happens is there is some type of sinful act, some type of disobedience. Okay? Then comes a judgment speech, usually by God. Later on, there will sometimes be prophets who will kind of fill that role. Here's the judgment speech. You've done messed up. This is what's going to happen now because you messed up. Then there is a token of grace. Love that. In the midst of judgment, grace. And then the execution of judgment, the actual playing out of the judgment. Look at Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, the sinful act, they disobey. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They weren't supposed to do that. They eat from it. Sinful act. Then the judgment speech. God says, hey, these are the consequences. Ladies, childbearing is going to be, the pain is going to be tenfold. Men, you're going to be you know, working the ground and the crops you know, by the sweat of your brow. 
you're going to yield fruit and you yield crops and you're going to die, essentially, and you're going to be cast from my presence. Judgment speech, token of grace, we find that God makes garments of skin for them. It's wonderful. Adam and Eve try to make it with fig leaves to cover themselves up and God makes clothing for them. It's a token of grace. He doesn't kill them immediately, thank God. But then the execution of judgment, he does indeed move them out of the garden. And the judgment has come. Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Let's see how this plays out with Cain and Abel. Again, I just want to continue to put it in your mind that we have order, 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 order. Such good, good order. But now that sin, now that chapter 3 has happened, immediately in chapter 4, we start seeing the effects of Adam and Eve's sin, the effects of what they have done and how that is passed on. And so, again, if order is good, then sin relates to disorder. Disorder. And we start to see disorder starting to grow and to spread. Check this out with Cain and Abel. We'll pick up uh, at verse 2. All right? Verse 2 of chapter 4. Again, I'm sorry, I don't have it on the board. I didn't bring your Bibles. Click it on your phones. You guys all got phones with the Bible app. All right? Follow along with me. It'll be wonderful. All right. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. That's Eve. Gave birth to Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. If you know the law, you know Abel, he brought the good stuff. And you'll see that as you read through sacrifices in Leviticus, the fat of a firstborn of your flock is the coup de gras. That's what you're to bring to the Lord. That is the best of the best. All right? Abel, it's interesting. It's always an interesting debate. Uh, was that, did Abel actually do that? Was that because it was already in place? Or is this Moses kind of writing back, showing that Abel did it really well? Look, fat portions from the first of the flock. It's always a great question. I don't know how much we'll ever know fully on that one. But here we go. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Check this out. Look how God is still trying to give order Trying to help Cain. Look at this. I love this. Why are you, the Lord said to Cain in verse 6, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? He's trying to teach him. He's trying to teach him. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So something that Cain did was probably not right. It was probably not bad. It would be interesting to know. I don't know fully. Didn't really get to it to try to figure that out, but Cain must have done something not best or something. So God's saying, hey, if you do what is right, you'll be accepted. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. Man, I just, I love it. God is still present. This is a cool thing too. God is still present with Cain and Abel in some form or fashion. All right? He's still there and he's trying to teach Cain. This is a teaching moment. He's trying to maintain order with Cain. What does Cain do? Verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. If anybody asks you to go out into a field, say no. <laughs> While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. He said, no, God, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm not going to get better. I'm not going to try to do right. 
No, I'm going to take matters into my own hand. And I'm going to kill my brother. And golly, this just epitomizes, again, in their culture, this is the, I mean, this is arguably one of the worst things you could do in their culture. Your family was just so, so, oh my gosh, the bonds of family, so, so important, so intimate. And you kill your brother. Horrible. This should shock us. Oh, this should really just, oh my gosh, look at sin, look at disorder, look how horrible this is. This is our sinful act according to our framework. Then verse 9, we kind of get this judgment speech, right? The Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, notice this. Does this sound familiar to Genesis 3? The punishment to Adam. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. There's very much, very much a similarity, but a further punishment. Adam was going to get crops by the sweat of his brow. Cain, it will no longer yield crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. Again, the big punishment for Adam and Eve. You are moved out of the garden, out of God's presence. Cain is already in that space, and now he is getting pushed further away from God's presence. This is huge. This is huge. You, I will be hidden from your presence in verse 13. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. Here's the token of grace. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Token of grace. He spares his life. But then now the execution of judgment in verse 16. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Oh man, so sad. So sad. Something I want you guys to note that's really important for us this morning is that sin's consequences always seem to affect God's presence. We see that. We see that with Adam and Eve. Their sin caused them to be moved away out of God's presence. God is still present with them to some degree, but Cain, as he sins, he gets moved further away. Note uh, Psalm 51, one of the great psalms. There's so many great ones. Psalm 51 was written by David. And David, Psalm 51 is believed that David wrote this after he sinned against Shower Sheba. I mean Bathsheba, sorry. All right? Sorry, guys, I just can't help but make that joke every single time. It's a bad one, but I love it. All right, David commits adultery with Bathsheba and sends her husband away to die in battle so that he can cover his tracks. But God knows, Nathan the prophet knows, and he gets in big trouble from it. Big time. David, man after God's own heart. All right? And he writes Psalm 51, a beautiful, beautiful psalm. Thank God for Psalm 51. But notice in verse 10 through 11, I don't have it on the board, sorry, but he says this very famously. You probably all have heard this one. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, or a pure heart, 
and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 11, do not cast me from your presence. Do not take away your spirit from me. Do you see how they viewed sin and the consequences always related to God's presence? Boy, let's fast forward to Jesus, shall we? Sin causes alienation. If sin causes alienation from the presence of God, then when Jesus dies for the forgiveness of sin, a huge part of that is that so that you can be back in the presence of God. It's very easy for us in our culture to focus on, oh, okay, God, just clean conscious now. Oh, guilt is taken away, and I get eternal life with God. You're not wrong, but you're just not deep enough into it. You're on the surface of it. you got to go deeper. What are you saved to? I love saying that. I love it. It's been such a good phrase for me when I've heard it. We always focus, it's very easy for us to focus on what are we saved from. We're saved from sin. We're saved from the penalty of death. But what are you saved to? You're saved to God's presence. To be back in God's presence. That's why it's such good news why Paul calls it such a fantastic news is that you're back in the presence of God. You're back in the intimacy. This is why he says, when you believe in Jesus, when your sins have been forgiven, you receive the Holy Spirit, God, in you. This is huge. This is monumental. This is unbelievable. It's such good news. They freak out about it. Paul, you can see, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, just freak it out. This is incredible. This is incredible. We're back in the presence of God. Because what always got in the way, what always removed us from the presence of God was our sin. Now that Jesus has been that sacrificial lamb that has covered our sin, we're back in the presence of God. We always begs the question, man, if you're not feeling that, if you're not experiencing that, why is that? What is going on? Where's your mind? Where's your desires? Where's your heart? Is God number one? Or is he like four, five, or six? Of course. Of course. It's going to be hard to experience this truth. But man, there's so much there. And it's so, so wonderful. Another thing, I'll kind of back up a little bit. Sometimes God's love gets pitted against God's justice. But I think this ordered themes really helps us to see that God is ordered. He is an ordered being. I love Psalm 19, Romans 1. Talk about creation. And talk about what we would maybe call uh, uh, nature. So the, think of physical sciences. And when you do science, you realize that so much of it is ordered. You can bank on a circle. And the diameter and the circumference and the, the area of a circle, no matter where you are in the world, will be the same formula to find it. It's wonderful. We always know that winter will follow fall and spring will follow winter. There's order. And these types of themes are kind of brought out in Psalms and in the Old Testament. We see order. We see order. We see order. And one of the pillars of societies in our human cultures, all time, and in all cultures, if you want an ordered society, what is one of your major, major, if not the most major pillar in your society? Justice. Sometimes we would say, God, why, why didn't you just, sins are gone. No worries. All right. 
snap my finger, I'm God, I can do whatever I want, so I'm going to send everybody, everybody's good. Let's get back to normal. God's order. You're asking him to be disordered. You're asking him to not be ordered. You can't ask God to be something that he is not. And he is the one thing in the entire universe that is always who he is all the time. And he is ordered. And to have order, there has to be consequences for sin. In our society, our society would go nuts if people were doing whatever they want and there was no consequences. And how do you think the people that were wronged would feel about that? And I know our cultures, human cultures, do the best they can. They do the best they can. Is it perfect? No. Definitely not. Boy, God is. Because He's just. And He deals with sin. And it must be dealt with. And we start to see this roller coaster run up where disorder is starting to just flood everywhere, starting to grow, starting to expand. God's like, you know what? I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to deal with this because I am just and this must be dealt with. And so the run up to the great flood, the great deluge, as I like to say. I don't think we're going to have time to get to it, so I'm going to make a couple quick notes. And then in a couple weeks, because we have Vision Sunday and things like that, we'll eventually talk about the flood and what it's running up to. But I want to make some quick notes. If you're following along in your Bibles, just to kind of, again, help give some clarity to some confusing passages, Genesis chapter 5, you have genealogies. And if you're like me, you're like, genealogies, yay, little fun, great times. No, not great times, all right? Some people are into them. Praise the Lord for you. Thank you. Write a book. I'll read the cliff note version of it, okay? <laughs> Something I will note about the genealogies, they actually are wonderful. Here's the thing to know about genealogies if you're reading through. The, the, their main literary purpose for why they are included is to give identity and significance. Identity and significance. It always behooves you to look at a genealogy and see who is the author trying to connect? Who are they trying to connect? And in this first one, you see that Noah is connected to Adam. And that's important, or Seth, excuse me, Seth. And that's important because Cain will also have a genealogy, but that's like the bad line, okay? So you would want to, hopefully, if you were in this time period, you'd be like, yeah, I'm related to Seth. I'm not part of Cain's line. No, 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 identity. I'm part of the good line, the blessed line, okay? Not the bad line that killed his brother, okay? Identity and significance. Now also, here's a good note to note with genealogies. That genealogy is 10 generations. When you eventually get Noah to Abram, Abraham, it's also 10 generations. We can't date things based on genealogies. Just not a good idea, okay? Genealogies were always, it was very common to, I'm gonna put a certain amount of numbers, generally, not always, but it was common that I'm gonna put a certain amount of numbers to prove, not prove a point, to expand on a point. 10 and 10, 10 commandments, this great number. 10 was this great number to them. There's a sign of completion, this wonderfulness. If Noah is the 10th generation, then Noah is gonna be a dude worth looking at. He's gonna be important. Same thing with Abram. Abraham is the 10th generation removed from Noah. He's an important figure. So our author is drawing attention to that. Again, we can, if you fast forward to Matthew, we know Matthew took certain names out so that he could show 14 generations from Abraham to David 
14 generations from David to the exile, 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. So we know he took names out from the king's list, if you go on 1st and 2nd Kings, and that's okay. He's not lying. It was very understood at that time. Nobody in that time would be like, oh my gosh, hey, you missed uh, these certain kings and stuff. They'd all be like, oh, that was nice. Oh, I see what you did there, Matthew. That was clever. 14, 14, 14, all right. They wouldn't say, you're lying. It was common. It was very common. Because it was more about showing a connection, an identity, and significance. Luke, Luke does what with his genealogy? He connects Jesus to God. So they're doing something. So that's kind of how genealogies are worked in a nutshell. We do not need to get all freaked out because we, uh, oh man, did they take certain names out? They just weren't used literally, literarily that way. And, uh, but again, because of that, don't try to date the earth based on genealogies, which is just something to know. Or try to date the flood or try to date certain things. Genealogies are just not used that way. The last thing I will say for our time's sake is if you get into Genesis chapter 6, you come across a very interesting few verses. I'll read them for you. When human beings began to increase in number, I'm at Genesis verse 1, Genesis 6 verse 1. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown. <sighs> Who in the world are these sons of gods? <laughs> it's a little bit of a phrase. It's like, hmm, this is interesting. What's going on here? Truthfully, there is tremendous debate. Not like, not like super heated debate because uh, it's pretty consensus that the identity of this group is not super, super important. We just need to understand what they did. But for funsies sake, let's try to see different views on the identity of this group. More than likely, it is not fallen angels. Um, sometimes it's referred to, they're, they're fallen angels. They're the fallen angels when when Satan and, and Michael duke it out in heaven and then they thrown to the earth and now they're wrecking havoc. Uh, there's just not a lot of evidence for that. It's a pretty popular view. There's just not very much evidence for that. You have the Hebrew is sons of God. It is not angels. We're going to have issues with that. Uh, one author, some have taken the route that it's just another kind of an idiom. It's a way of saying the offspring of Adam and the offspring of Eve. That's one way of saying it. Again, that's a little bit like... Uh, it's interesting, not a whole lot of grounding on it. Um, sons of God can, I don't have this written up there, but sons of God can sometimes be uh, a way of saying you're a really important figure. So David kind of has Psalms where he's referred to as the son of God. It's just showing that you are very intimately connected with God and you are really involved in his purposes on earth. And so, again, not... We kind of, we go from like the Romans where it's like the Roman emperors were like sons of God and they literally thought they were gods. Yeah, Hebrew would be a little bit like, no, we're, we know we're not gods, we're humans, but we're very intimately connected with God in relationship and in bringing about his purposes. So that, that phrase can be brought about. Um, if you'll go to, if not go, but if you want to write down Psalm 82, you will find again this idea, this concept being brought out of these gods 
um, also that are kind of involved in God's divine counsel. So if you're referred to Job 1 and 2, God convenes a council, and that's where Satan kind of comes from wandering the earth, and he's in this council, and they're talking about what they're going to do to Job, right? Again, you could have these gods, sons of gods, involved in that to some degree. It's a little bit difficult. Uh, again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really rub us in our very modern culture where anything like this uh, is going to be like, mm, this sounds a little foo-foo, like, what's going on here? Um, you know, a way of thinking about it, you could see these people being kind of like Achilles and um, Hercules, where they're kind of these semi-divine. They kind of are human, but also godlike. Again, I think the thing to be said here, most important thing, we're not going to be probably super sure on this. They lived in a different culture. The Israelites, a different culture. They saw the world differently. They really did. And again, it's hard sometimes to know exactly what they were looking at because they saw the world through a lens, and so they wrote about it in a particular lens. And again, God said, hey, this is enough. This is good. I put my stamp of approval. This is enough for salvation. And this is where, again, maybe this is too much in the weeds, but uh, the Bible can be super simple, and it is super simple. It is a great, simple message that a child can understand, and that's wonderful. At the same time, you can go incredibly deep with it, and I think we, I will always say, push out. Push out from the shore. Yes, you understand the beach? Great. Go deeper. Go, into, go deeper into the ocean. Go dive. Go get some scuba gear, scuba gear on. Go dive into the depths of the Lord. Don't get lost. Don't get in over your head. Be wise. But go deeper into the Lord. He's such a big person that wants to know you. Man, I imagine when I get married one day, I could easily be like, well, I know everything about you. Great. Let's just do life together. I imagine she would love to hear that from me. I don't know. I'm not married. But I imagine, all right? I imagine she'd say, no, get to know me more. Get to know me more. Keep getting to know me more. And I would want the same for her. If you get to know me more. So keep going. Going with the Lord. I think what we need to point out, and this will kind of lead us to our uh, next sermon of mine as the flood, is that this group was to be an agents of order. They're intimately connected with God's order, bringing purposes on earth. And instead of bringing order, they bring disorder. And God has come to a place where now he's no longer, no longer going to contend with humans. In the 120 years, my final little point, has often been referred to lifespans. Um, it's difficult because you find after this passage, a number of people live past 120 years. We even in our modern times have someone that has lived to 122 years. So this is a little bit of a difficult passage. It's just created some, some mm, mm. And so interpreters have also, this is 120 years until God is bringing the flood. It can be read that way to some degree. Again, the English is a little bit tough, but it takes some work. But again, I don't think we're looking into something. I think we're just looking at what is going on here. In verse 3 of chapter 6, I will no longer contend with the humans forever. They are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Their days. 120 years until I'm coming. And I'm coming. And I'm wiping them all out. Sad, sad run up. These are melancholy stories. They're not super lighthearted. They're not ones that, oh man, this is fun reading the Bible. No, there are many sad stories in the Bible. 
And this is a sad one. We are seeing the run-up to disorder and dismay and, and, and just God is so angered. And I just, I think of different stories like Wreck-It Ralph when Ralph helps build this great go-kart for this girl and I forget her name, but then he eventually destroys it. And it's a sad part. You think of these movies where people built these wonderful things and then for whatever reason they got to destroy it. And this is God, so disheveled, so angered, built this great good world, ordered it so well, gave us such a position of a, a, a wonderful position to work hand in hand with him, to have intimacy, to have a relationship with him. And we constantly are pushing back on God and constantly saying, no, I want to do it my way. I don't want you, God. I want to do it my way. And it just leads to greater disorder in the world, greater violence and just all around just disorder. And we see this in our lives. We see this in our lives, how we can be agents of disorder and God just constantly imploring us be agents of order. And that comes through just obedience to God's word. Obedience to God's word. And I just want to encourage you with that. Stand up with me and we'll close in prayer. To be agents of order. To be agents of order. Man. I have way more points, but it's all connected to the flood. And so in a few weeks, we'll get to the flood. We'll talk about the flood. We'll have great conversations about the flood. It's a sad sad event, but at the end of it, we actually have a really cool thing, an introduction to the covenant, one of the Mount Rushmore themes in the Old Testament. It is so important, and we get to see these order-bringing covenants come into play, and uh, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. Well, let's pray. Father God, we do end tonight on a melancholy note because we understand the gravity of our sin. And we understand uh, the pains that it brings you and the pain that it brings to people in our lives and even to ourselves and into this good earth that you have created. And God, we thank you for Jesus who has forgiven us of this sin man, and brought us back into your presence. We are so grateful. We rejoice. We rejoice, Lord. But we also see that sin is still rampant and disorder all around us. So God, may we partner with you. May you help us, give us strength, Holy Spirit, to partner with you, to not say my way, to say your way. God, to be agents of order, to bring order back to this good earth so that we may be a blessing to all those around us, and even ourselves and our own bodies. God, may we result in great praise to you, for you are good, and you have created a good, good earth. It deserves so much glory and praise. We're grateful. Oh, God, we love you. Bless us as we have this meeting. God, bless our discussions. And uh, God, may you give us vision. Be our vision for this new year. And God, we just want to follow you and do things your way and, and see, God, you do immeasurably more than we could ask or think through Live Oaks Church. Oh, we're grateful, God. We love you. It's in your name. We pray, Lord Jesus. And we all said together, amen. 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 Praise